Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. everyone. Welcome to another episode of the AMT podcast. My name is Danu J. Asilin, and today we're joined by Drs. Laura Thornton and Sarah Cristello. Dr. Thornton has received her DPT from Virginia Commonwealth University. She's completed her residency in orthopedics through the Virginia Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy Institute, or VOMT, and she's completed her fellowship through the Brooks Rehabilitation University of North Florida program. Currently, she's working in outpatient uh, rehabilitation at UVA. Dr. Cristello completed her DPT from Arcadia University. She completed her residency and fellowship training through the Brooks Rehabilitation and UNF program. And she's currently serving as Director of Operations for the Brooks Institute of Higher Learning, leading the residency and fellowship programs. Today, we'll be talking about their AMT conference presentation titled Recurrent Proximal Hamstring Injuries, Clinical Reasoning for Comprehensive Assessment and Intervention and Rehabilitation. Drs. Thornton and Cristello, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank, Thank you for having us. You know, uh, hamstring injuries are one of my interests, and in anything related to the muscle and tendon unit is a specific interest of mine. I'm hoping to get some insight into why this topic was so interesting to you. Yeah, I can I can start us off. Um, this presentation was really inspired by a case. Um, last year, I worked with a gentleman who had been experiencing multiple hamstring injuries in a span of two to three years. And Sarah is and um, was my primary fellowship mentor at the time. And so we worked together um, with this gentleman to try and um, figure out what what was causing and what was contributing to these injuries and made sure that we were doing a comprehensive rehabilitation program. And then we said, you know, this is, this is valuable. We should really bring this information to the table. We thought that there were, um, there was a good, um, clinical decision-making process. And then also there were some really clinical pearls that might fill in some gaps for some folks. So, um, so this is a, a, a real case, and um, uh, hopefully, I, I, I hope that uh, people got a lot out of it. And so your topic speaks specifically to the proximal aspect of the hamstring and proximal hamstring injuries and recurrent strains. And I'm wondering, is there a specific difference? You know, like, is there something that you would do differently to differentiate a proximal hamstring injury versus a different component of the hamstring? Or is it necessary to differentiate those things in the recovery process? I think that's a really good point. And I think that we're starting to see how important it is to have specificity in our care because not all hamstrings are the same. Um, different hamstring bellies are going to have different functions. And also there's different anatomy from the proximal to the distal end of the muscle belly, and therefore different types of load management that needs to happen, different type of architectural properties that might dictate what types of things we're doing to facilitate the healing. And then also different types of ways we need to think about um, returning 
the patient back to different sport demands. Yeah, the only thing that I would add there was some of the things that we were able to highlight would really be applicable to also any other lower extremity injury and not necessarily the hamstrings at all. So considering some factors through the, you know, biomechanics of the lower extremity, or we talked a lot about, um, you know, lumbopelvic stability or considerations there. So I think in addition to the need to be extremely specific um, being present, I think there's also a need to realize that other contributing factors that might take your patient, you know, in a positive direction could be very much outside of the hamstring itself when you're working with a patient who's got recurrent injuries. When you speak to the hamstrings, obviously it's a two joint muscle and the architecture approximately is different from the mid portion versus the distal aspect. And so understanding where the issue is with the hamstring specifically, I think is relevant. But then you also bring up a great point of regardless of if it's the hamstring or the quadriceps or the Achilles or the rotator cuff, there's always going to be some sort of proximal and distal uh, contributing factor that needs to be addressed. And one thing you went through in your presentation was the distal factors of what's going on at the foot and ankle, and then the proximal factors of what's going on at the lumbopelvic region. And I'm hoping you can speak to maybe what are some things we should be maybe honing in on, or what are some common impairments you might see present in people with hamstring injuries um, when you look up and down the chain? Yeah. So if we started the foot, one of the things that we wanted to highlight is there always being an emphasis on understanding and really intervening. I think a lot of times around the rear foot. So people have a good understanding of what's happening at the talocrural joint or the subtalar joint. And so in our presentation, we, we tried to make a case for how the, the mid and forefoot can really impact the need and the demands up the chain through the gait cycle. So if we have a patient who presents um, with potential, you know, a bad deck of cards when it comes to lower extremity biomechanics, um, or maybe they have an okay deck, they're just not using it, you know, as well as they they could be, um, the implications of that. And so what that is, is you have to compensate somewhere. And so if it's, you know, joint or inert tissue overload, where's that compensation going to come? And, And it could really present itself in a number of different ways. And then the other idea is if you're not controlling load or forces well down the chain, then your muscles are essentially asked to work overtime. So you might have the ability to decrease the demand on the hamstrings by doing a better job of controlling, you know, really frontal plane motions a lot of the time at the foot. So then if we look more, you know, proximally, the there's some a lot of literature that links, you know, trunk lean and pelvic tilt, anterior pelvic tilt, and some control around the lumbopelvic um, structures to hamstring injuries, which is the the literature that we really investigated. But we could find similar literature for probably the majority of our lower extremity um, chain injuries. So just really understanding the specificity around that the link really, it does exist. And so we have an opportunity to work on motor control to then essentially try to, I guess, decrease the demand required of the hamstrings in this instance. Yeah, that's a that's a great point because, I mean, even when I was a student actually at UVA with one of my mentors, thinking through the person that's an overhead head, head athlete, understanding the the importance of single leg stance to that person's shoulder problem, I think that same 
principle applies is, is if you don't have midfoot mobility, then your ground reaction forces are not going to be dampened as much. And maybe that's going to lead to proximal contributions of the hamstrings, pulling your, your leg off the ground faster or being more rigid with your impact. And if you're not a rear foot striker, maybe it doesn't even matter where your rear foot is, but maybe it does matter where your trunk position is, whether you're compensating in the frontal plane or sagittal plane or transverse plane. So that component of evaluation of the whole person, it should not go undervalued whatsoever. And there is a lot of research, I think, on hamstring injuries and hamstring anatomy specifically. And so there is research out there, but whenever a condition becomes recurrent, my question is always, what are we missing? What's not there that could be there? So I'm wondering if you, in your research, have found like specific gaps that you think exist in the literature related to the optimal management or potentially prevention of specifically of these recurrent injuries? Yeah, it's a great question because I think it's so complex and it's not just one gap. Um, I think there's a reason why these hamstring injury recurrence rate is up to 30% because there's so many different things that could contribute to recurrent or repetitive injuries in that same region. And so I think the literature right now does a fantastic job looking at the architecture of the hamstring, looking at um, phases of gait that could be posing a, you know, a risk of injury. But it would be really interesting to look at specifically lower extremity mechanics midfoot, forefoot contributions, and then also the specifics, even going into more detail about the lumbopelvic contribution. I know that we have the trunk lean, the increased pelvic tilt. The other thing is I don't think people really understand how to truly assess that. I think they understand that that's a factor, but one of the things that Sarah and I tried to do in, especially in our lab component of our presentation is, is how do you even look at that clinically? You know, we understand that increased pelvic to anterior pelvic could put proximal strain on that hamstring attachment. But how how do you look at that clinically? How do you how are you able to assess that? And then how do you turn that into actual intervention if you find that that's a factor? So we try to bridge that gap a little bit into what are we finding risk factor wise, and then how do you actually look at it and then potentially um, influence it in the clinical environment. If you had to do a quick and dirty screen of individuals, let's say you're working with high school athletes and you're looking at a prevention program, are there specific clinical tests that you feel like would be most useful to assess at the lumbopelvic region and then at the foot and ankle? Oh God, my mind went totally on some of those other factors, like side to side differences in strength being a big predictor for you know, injury, but yeah, there's a couple of things, you know, I think ultimately a dynamic gait analysis with a, you know, 15 second video on a treadmill, like is so valuable. So that if we, we could have a treadmill at our screen and a quick snippet of their dynamic gait, I think that would be most helpful. And again, we focused because this was framed around a patient on gait, but we would potentially want to do the same thing from, from running mechanics. But we did highlight essentially that in gait, you know, you really need a heel rocker, an ankle rocker, and a forefoot rocker. And so in order to have normal gait, and that means that you're landing on the lateral part of your heel, you're moving 
you're dorsiflexing through the talocrural joint was where we, where we want it to happen. And then you're, you know, extending through the first MTP. And then, so what are some of the biomechanics that take us there? There is a, there's a pretty quick static exam that you can look at that includes, you know, what does it look like? Are you putting weight through your first ray? Do you have a good metatarsal arch in static standing? What's your resting calcaneal stance? Do you extend through your MTP when you're in static standing? And then do you move other places? You can sort of look at like, if you're extending through your first IP joint, then maybe that's telling us you're not extending through your first MTP. So in the presentation, we did go through a nice kind of quick static exam that we would um, ultimately want to put up against a dynamic analysis. So I think in a, in a screening situation that might take, you know, four minutes. So totally doable. And one of the things we like to highlight specifically in, in a patient who has a previous risk for injury or has a risk for injury or maybe a previous injury, because that's a really big predictor of a re-injury, a previous injury, right? So is the idea of looking for subtle things. And so we, we talked a lot about not necessarily magnitude, but also duration. So a lot of times I think we get into a situation where we do a screen and things look relatively normal. So we kind of check it off, but using the example of somebody maybe who has a normal navicular drop on static stance, and even in dynamic gait, it looks relatively normal, except the duration is off. Meaning once we get to mid stance, we would want to see that navicular start to rise. And it didn't descend very much. It just stayed down past mid stance. So we talked a lot about things might look okay in magnitude, but not necessarily okay in duration or in somebody that has a recurrent injury where we, we maybe want to be a little bit more picky than we would in somebody who had very acute, you know, first time injury. So, but I think that those things would be able to be done in a screening environment. And then the same for the lumbopelvic piece, you know, it, there's so much you can get just from observing somebody's movement patterns. So if you want to include again, that the gait and single leg stance, and maybe some other functional movements specific to the sport that they perform, that would be great. And then also we, we went through kind of a prone version of the active straight leg race. So when you start to modify things, does the hip extension prone or, or, or knee flexion get better in quality, better in pain, better in ease of, of motion, or does the patient able to, um, exhibit more strength. So if you were to use like a handheld dynamometer, could you give some compression around the pelvis and influence any of those factors, pain, control, strength? And that might be an indication that you want to look further. So that was a nice little screening technique that then once you start to find positive things, you would want to explore, you know, what are the specifics around this person's lumbopelvic control that we might want to investigate further? Yeah. And it seems like if you have a, a screening tool, you can get a quick snapshot, but then once you need to be more specific, going into all these specific kind of tests and measures that you're mentioning and modifying them around what is the physical and functional demand of that person, videotaping to come back to it and really analyze it specifically if somebody's in pain or having difficulty running. But I wonder, even if all these proximal and distal factors, what if they were perfect, right? But this person still has this recurrent hamstring problem. Uh, it seems like, and you mentioned it in your presentation that part of the therapeutic exercise prescription is going to include eccentrics and plyometrics. And I think sometimes that takes, it gets taken for granted that that's the, the necessary thing to do while it needs to be incorporated based on the hamstrings eccentrically loading and eccentrically lengthening during swing and all those types of things. Where would you start to incorporate those? And 
why would you maybe not incorporate those types of activities for somebody specifically who's had this condition before? Um, I can just speak to the eccentrics part. You know, I, I would think that at this point, we would have enough literature that points to how important eccentric strengthening is based on the literature that we have. But I think part of the reason why I wanted to talk about it is do we under really understand why it's so important for the spectrum of hamstring injuries? And it might be something that we consider for the muscle belly, no matter what type of injury there is, because we go back to this length torque curve that we have. And so we know that the muscle has an optimum length to generate torque. But what can happen with injuries, especially recurrent injuries, is we can have the shift of that optimum length to where now the muscle is starting to generate torque at a shorter length. And so when we're still putting that muscle at really long lengths, say, say during dancing or sprinting or cutting maneuvers, then we could be putting the hamstring at risk because we're putting that hamstring on the greatest strain, but it's not able to actually generate the optimum amount of torque. So that's what we're starting to find is that this eccentric strengthening can actually shift that graft. So now we're getting a greater force production at these longer muscle lengths. So the muscle can actually handle or have the capacity to generate that force production at those longer lengths. So I, I talk about that a fair amount during the presentation because I think it we know eccentric strengthening is so important, but do we understand the potential mechanism of why? Um, and I think it's I think it's a really important factor no matter what. The other cool thing that I also found about eccentric strengthening is not only has this shift um, for optimum force production, but what they're starting to find is it also is improving the stiffness of the contractile unit. So that's really where the tendon part of the hamstring injury comes into play because we do want a relatively stiff tendon so it can absorb power and then generate power very efficiently. And so what we're finding is eccentric strengthening might play a role in being able to actually improve the stiffness of the entire contractile unit. When you speak to the why of the exercise prescription, I think that's so important is not just kind of following the leader of, you know, this has worked in the past, this should work again, but understanding the rationale, theorized or realistic, uh, I think that's really what's going to help guide the successful management of individuals is having a reason for doing something. And then we always think about, you know, once we get people off of the table and they're good and they're strong and their trunk is strong and things are working when they should be working for the duration and magnitude they should be working for, what about when they get back into running? You know, thinking about like return to running processes, we know that we should be gradual, but sometimes I think those programs tend to be less than deliberate. And so mm -hmm. I'm wondering, and you spoke to it a little bit, can you give me maybe your thought process on how to succinctly, effectively, and systematically get somebody back into a running progression? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can speak to this again, Sarah, because I think that's a great point. I think that I think it's really tough and I think it's very individualized when we're trying to make that next shift towards a greater demand, um, especially like running where there's a big shift of the hamstring from walking into running. 
And in the presentation, I go back to Tim Gabbett's model um, that he published back in 2016 that looks at acute versus chronic workload. And I think overall, that's a really important concept to start thinking about because it's not just about the step-by-step -step progression. It's about looking at the whole entire big picture from a bird's eye view. So we gave this example of workload where if we were to do a very kind of conservative increase in workload, say 10% weekly, and the patient would rate it the same type of intensity each week, Overall, by that six week, the workload ratio would be relatively low, but especially in those first two weeks, the shift from not doing that activity to suddenly doing that activity, that workload, that change of workload is really high. So I think especially, especially during those first couple of weeks of returning to running or returning to sport or having that big shift of activity, I think that is vital to really monitor fatigue status, to really monitor how the patient is responding, even pain levels, um, even being able to monitor strength and flexibility measures and seeing if you're having a big change during those two weeks, because there is a huge shift in workload. So I think one of my biggest points was, especially those first few weeks of returning to sport, returning to running, monitoring the patient or the athlete's functional status and making sure that we're loading them properly and not giving them too much too quickly. Yeah. And with our exercise prescription, we can be very specific. We need to be gradual progressive. We need to match what their capacity is. And with these recurrent hamstring injuries or first-time recoveries, you know, exercise tends to be the best medicine and workload management and all these things tend to be the best prescription and management mm -hmm. strategy. But knowing that we're talking about uh, a podcast for AOMP, I always think about what the role of manual therapy is. And so I have some opinions on the topic, but I'm wondering what are your thoughts on when and where and what type of manual therapy might be more applicable for this person with a hamstring injury compared to something else? With manual therapy, it was incorporated throughout the entire plan of care um, because we use it during our um, assessment of lumbopelvic stability. So we can use our hands to change the relative stability around the pelvis and then look at the hamstring demand after that. We can look at different types of mobility assessments with our hands, especially around the forefoot. We talked about that during lab, um, especially in the early stages of his rehab. We did hands-on um, manual therapy to address some of the consistent guarding and try to um, improve his, his resting state of the muscle. I didn't do this, but I know that there's some literature on dry needling um, assisting in, in hamstring rehabilitation. So I think manual therapy has its place in a lot of different aspects of not only assessment, but then also treatment as well. So it wasn't just in one part of the phase. It was really just throughout each piece and seeing how um, hands-on therapy could potentially influence what was happening. But you're right in terms of exercise had such an important component. Hands-on provided invaluable piece to assessment and intervention, but then always, you know, loading in that active component was, was an important concept as well. 
yeah, I, I guess what I, w- I would say is for this patient, you know, it was his fourth injury and he had gone through therapy previously. And at the time of discharge, it was always deemed successful, but uh, he came back to therapy a few times later. So that really makes me think, is this recurrent and how many other injuries, you know, where we need to get potentially a little bit more specific and really understand those precipitating and predisposing factors. So as Laura mentioned, we did that and we used manual manual therapy in terms of our assessment. And we also did it in terms of our in- intervention. And so what I, I think the really the point for us that we were trying to transfer was that it really depends on whether it is or isn't good for each patient. And in this specific patient that we found opportunities where manual therapy was really useful throughout his plan of care. And for another patient, you know, through shared decision-making, that might not be a good piece to your current, you know, your current puzzle, or maybe it is the the biggest piece to to your puzzle. But I think when we start to think about putting the word and your recurrent and overuse injuries and repetitive in front of it, that we really have to not that we shouldn't do this in general, but you know that that dive for exposing all of the predisposing and precipitating factors is there. And so we found lots of ways, and I think there are tons of ways where manual therapy might help you address that specific patient's whys. I would say even the reason that we thought AMPT was the perfect place to, to do this presentation is because this was the patient where you need to go deeper. You can't just stop at that superficial framework or not really understand the problem because of one, the really high likelihood of re-injury for these folks. Two, the fact that he did have technically a successful return to his return to walk, but he still re-injured himself. And then three, his flexibility, his strength, and some of his motor control measures came back very quickly, but he still wasn't able to actually go back to his running and walking. He was still having pain. He was still having significant fatigue with what his desirable return to activity was. So AMPT is really about a systematic and advanced clinical reasoning and really get down into what the problem was. And so was it one problem or was it several different problems that we needed to go deeper into each problem and to be able to address and then um, hopefully get him back to activity, of course, but then also reduce his likelihood of re-injury um, again, which was which was one of our very high priorities. Both of you mentioned it, and I, th- I think it's true across the board, and it's kind of my favorite phrase in PT. My students hate it, actually, but it's when you talk about patient management, it always depends, you know? It always depends on what should I do, when should I do it, what should I choose, why should I choose it? Every single time it depends. I think it's beautiful uh, as part of our profession, but it's also one of the most challenging things when it comes to research because it's always going to be a slight bit different, you know? And because of that, I think specifically when we get into recurrent injuries, then it becomes even more challenging. You have to start to find out what are the precipitating, predisposing factors. When it comes to recurrent injuries, especially at the hamstring, I know you're talking about this specific patient case. What do you think are the hardest parts about managing these these problems? Um, I'll say it point blank. I think it's understanding the problem. I think when we have these recurrent injuries 
And when we have repetitive injuries or even signs of somewhere where the kinetic chain is breaking down and I would pose the question, do we actually understand the problem? Because if we try to intervene or do treatment, but we don't actually understand the problem, then I think that's where a big gap is. So how can we fill in those gaps to ask as many questions as take as many data, as much data as we can to fully really understand the problem um, from the big picture, even down to the little details? To treat something, you have to know what you're treating first. You have to understand the process, the problem, the pathology, the person. And you did that successfully with your, your patient that you presented. If you had a specific or a single kind of key point or a take-home message from your presentation for those that did attend or maybe those that were not able to, what would that take-home message be? I think overall, I would say especially when you're dealing with recurrent injuries, especially with repetitive injuries or signs or subjective history of degenerative types of injuries or a medical pass, I would say, make sure you have a framework to be able to go deeper. And that's what we try to provide in our presentation is a roadmap to say, okay, these are the basic things that everybody should be doing with hamstring injuries. These are the well-known, well-supported things in the literature, like restoring flexibility, active flexibility, I should say, eccentric strengthening, a progressive return to sport, making sure you have adequate rehabilitative process. But do you have a roadmap or a framework to be able to say, well, what if there are gaps? And if I get to the point where I do feel stuck, then where do I go? And what's my framework to be able to figure that out? And what we try to do is to write, to provide some sort of framework or roadmap, not a protocol, not a recipe, not a, anything cookie cutter, but some sort of way of being able to ask the right questions. So I think, I, I think that's the biggest thing that I would say is have a roadmap or a framework to be able to figure out what those questions are. Yeah, I think, Laura, that was, that was really I couldn't agree more. I, I think the only thing I would add if I were to give something, you know, different or that adds on was the idea that it's, it's not always one thing mm -hmm. and it's not always big things. So in this gentleman, we were able to, um, improve, you know, um, foot mechanics, improve lumbopelvic control, improve, you know, that the hamstrings capacity and, each thing made a difference, work on low tolerance. So it's not always like a thing and it could be a lot of things. And those, those lot of things could be small, but when you do, you know, a 5% reduction in how much you're asking the hamstrings to work by addressing the foot, that's five, that, that up the chain that translates to a lot. So um, the idea of, of not always the kind of thinking like I've got to find the thing, but it's okay to find small things. And when you add them up, they can have a big impact. And so um, with the recurrent injury, the idea is to use, like Laura said, a framework and appreciate how subtle contributions become big once you start to add them up. I couldn't agree more, you know, with, with hamstring um, injuries, they're so common, they're so prevalent, they're so recurrent. And they're recurrent for so many different reasons, whether it's at the hamstring, whether it's distal, whether it's proximal, having a, a framework to start into that process of just making minor changes when they need to be made. I think that's the first step in trying to 
manage these people that have such a complex presentation. And so I, I really do appreciate you all putting this case forward and presenting it at AOMT. And I'm really appreciative of you taking the time to chat about it because I do think that even though we know so much about hamstrings, we there's so much still left to know, but having a, a structured thought process and certain things to, to kind of hone into, that should, that should start us into more success, I think. So I appreciate you all taking the time to chat with me, and I look forward to seeing more of your work in the future. Thank you, Danu. This was great. Appreciate you giving us the time to speak. Agreed. It was a pleasure. All right. Take care. This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT. The views and opinions expressed on the AOMPT podcast are those of the interviewers and interviewees and do not represent the official position of AOMPT. The information presented should not be used as personal health care or clinical practice advice. If you need to find an expert orthopedic physical therapist near you, then check out the Find a Fellow feature under the Public Resources tab at www.aaompt.org, which you can find in the show notes.